0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at OpioidResponse.info.
1: Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, senior political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And while I'm a regular panelist on Wednesdays, today I have the honor of filling in for the great Bill Nigat. And I am joined by an amazing panel for our last live show of the year. You heard that right. Last live show of the year, starting with Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University. Professor Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, There's Emma Hurt, reporter for Axios Atlanta, fantastic reporter, joining us from the Georgia coast. Emma, thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Greg. And I have to jump in here and say a happy birthday to my mom, who agreed to give me an hour of her birthday uh, to to be on Political Rewind. She's downstairs probably listening in right now. Well,
1: thank you to your mom. Happy birthday. And our listeners thank your mom, too, because we really appreciate your expertise for these issues. Uh, Professor Adrian Jones, a professor of political science at Morehouse University. Professor, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you and happy holidays, everyone. You too. We need it. And Tamar Hallerman, my colleague at the AJC, also a senior reporter and also a fill in host for Bill Niget, not in the host chair today. Today, she gets to be a panelist. Tamar, thank you so much.
0: Hey, Greg, it's a trip getting to do this with you.
1: (laughs) So, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We'll start off the show talking about some of the latest news surrounding COVID 19. Um, Just yesterday, Mayor Bottoms announced a reinstatement of a citywide mask mandate on the heels of rising COVID cases fueled by the Omicron variant. Among those new cases is Atlanta mayor-elect Andre Dickens. We'll talk about whether a change in city le- leadership also could change the city's approach to COVID-19 as Mayor Dickens takes office in January. Tomorrow, we already knew the mayor-elect was facing a range of challenges. Now you add Omicron variant and the rising number of cases that they could be inundating hospitals soon to the list.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that President Joe Biden has been dealing with for the last year and just showing how unpredictable it all is. Um, it's, it's hard to control. And then your political opponents are going to take that and, and make it their narrative. It's swinging out of control, and it's because of the actions of this politician. It's completely out of their hands, and you have to kind of make these judgment calls. Um, you know, your public health officials are telling you one thing, they're going to be more conservative about locking down and doing stuff like that, but there's also the political realities of governing, which is something that uh, outgoing Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms found out. It's something that Governor Brian Kemp uh, has been dealing with, and so it's certainly going to be a challenge for the new mayor. And then, like you said, the man's going to have to be isolating for the next yeah. 10 days, two weeks, this crucial transition period where he needs to be hiring staff, getting stuff in order. Um, so it certainly adds a huge <coughs> complication to his uh, entry into office.
1: Emma Tamar mentioned the political dynamics of this, just like everything else over the next year. It, everything is politicized. And um, you know, Governor Kemp. Tomorrow was at an event with him on Monday when he was asked the question about whether or not the Omicron variant would would s- spark any new restrictions. And not surprisingly, he the governor said no. He's he's monitoring the situation, but he's he's been against um, any sort of uh, sweeping restrictions from really from 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 uh, much the last two years. Um, but you know, this is now an opening that David Perdue has seized, and he, David Perdue has. Republican challenger is saying that Governor Kemp isn't strong enough on anti-vaccine and anti-mask mandates. So you know, it already looks like this is becoming yet another wedge issue in the race for for governor.
2: Yeah, um, so Sen- uh, Senator Purdue sent out a um, campaign blast yesterday about it. Like you said, attacking, excuse me, <clears throat> Governor Kemp for allowing quote these mandates. And I just was flashing back to when. Governor Kemp and Mayor Bottoms were in mediation because Kemp had sued the city Mm -hmm. for trying to go back to phase one lockdown last summer. And it's just sort of this wild political universe we're living in where depending on where you're standing, you see things in a completely different way. Governor Kemp's office would of course say, what are you talking about? We have spent the last two years weathering criticism for fighting mandates. Um, for David Perdue. This is, this is an argument to
1: be made. Yeah, Professor Gillespie, I mean, not surprisingly, uh, Governor Kemp's spokeswoman criticized Mayor Bottoms' new order. And as Emma mentioned, they've been feuding back and forth over coronavirus restrictions for much of the last two years, really now. Um, she called the mandate divisive, unnecessary. I guess the question is, will this latest bout of COVID lead to a similar clash between Kemp and Bottoms, maybe not in the courts, but just over public health, if, if, if this new surge gets worse?
3: Well, I assume that the state is going to take the position that uh, that Governor Kemp's order to basically nullify any city or local attempts to try to mandate masks is gonna preempt anything that the city does. I suspect though right now, just kind of given the lay of the land and the situation and back and forth that we've had for almost the last two years, about these issues is that the issue of non-enforcement is going to come into play. And since many people expect that people are not going to be ticketed for, you know, not wearing their masks in certain spaces, that that sort of issue of non-enforcement sort of at, the, at just at the street level is probably going to prevent this from actually being as big of an issue and that what near bottoms did ended up largely being a symbolic act that maybe induces some uh, business owners to try to enforce mask mandates on their own within their own spaces.
1: And Professor Jones, meanwhile, I mean, the the governor's in this kind of weird spot, too, because on the one hand, he is uh, insulting and criticizing mask restrictions. But on the other hand, his own administration through the Department of Public Health is going out and encouraging people to wear masks, and 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 get the coronavirus vaccine, which which also the governor has always pushed for, but you know his own his own administration is also uh, urging people to wear masks in crowded public places and the like.
4: I mean, I can't imagine that the governor doesn't understand that it's not a political issue; <clears throat> it's a health issue for Georgians, and um, we're in not the best space, um, and so I'm okay with the. The governor being slightly contradictory since he doesn't want to issue more strict mandates and make sure that people are getting vaccinated and wearing masks um, here in our state and around the world. That's the only way we're going to be able to get out of um, these kinds of surges that we're seeing right now.
1: Tamar, uh, the governor also this week announced yet another legal challenge against the White House's coronavirus uh, efforts to to mandate the coronavirus vaccine for millions of, of Americans, um, this is a legal battle too that that will be front and center in in the 2022 campaign as a way that the governor could say he's fighting uh, what he sees as onerous restrictions.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you hear him talk, you know, you mentioned this event that he did Monday at the uh, Atlanta Community Food Bank. And he, he talks about and kind of kind of bullying, boiling down a lot of the actions that we've seen from him over the last year and a half or so. You know, he talks a lot about personal responsibility. Um, and that's something that very much gels with kind of the ethos of the GOP. He talks about how he's vaccinated, how he thinks people should be, but it comes down to a personal choice and people need to be responsible about it. So I think you're going to see um, kind of that being a through line in a lot of his campaign messaging as well. Um, and as we've talked about endlessly on his show, um, you know, he's really gonna lay his hat on the economic. Um, rebound of Georgia after the initial shutdowns, obviously talking about things like the Rivian deal. He' views Georgia's economy as kind of the the cornerstone of or one of the cornerstones of his campaign. So I mean, that kind of explains why we might not see actions from him to to further shut down the economy because he he's touting these low unemployment numbers all the time. And so he doesn't want to do anything to tarnish that.
1: yeah, I, I, you're right um, Tamar, because he's he's told me, and he said numerous times, on the record, um, as loud as he can, that he will, that Georgia will not be going back to economic restrictions, uh, you know. But Emma, the White House isn't going to give up anytime soon either. Uh, Joe Biden announced new federal efforts uh, aimed at COVID countermeasures. Chief among them, the federal government will mail out a half billion COVID home tests to people who want them starting next month. So, the White House is stepping up its efforts too because Joe Biden and Democrats don't want to be blamed uh, for this new Omicron spread as well.
2: Yeah, and I don't know, I haven't asked Governor Kemp, but maybe that's something they can agree on that everyone should get free at home (laughs) tests. I'm not sure. Uh, If anybody wants to text us, let us know uh, what Kemp's position is on it. But you're right. I mean, um, we just have this dynamic for Republicans in, in Georgia and across the country, really, with. President Biden in the White House, that that he becomes, you know, this this punching bag, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. easier in politics to run with an, a clear uh, opponent, somebody that you can criticize um, and not have to try to navigate like having you know, a Republican president in office that you're supposed to be buddy buddy with who might be screwing things up. So um, it, it's something that we will likely continue to see only increase as we um, as this election year ramps up.
1: Professor Gillespie, you know, no matter the politics around this, the numbers don't lie. And, and you know, our, our friend, Dr. Amber Schmidke, um, a public health scientist, has a recent chart that shows we are entering a, a fifth surge. Her newsletter from a couple of days ago it it, it shows where we stand in Georgia and numbers elsewhere in their country reveal vaccinations as the key to limiting hospitalizations. Georgia continues to lag when it comes to vaccinations and our public leaders continue to to face criticism about not doing enough to encourage Georgians to get not just the vaccinations, but also the booster shots. Well, I mean,
3: so, you know, some of that, you know, is some just kind of deep seated, um, just refusal and recalcitrance to get Uh, to get vaccinated. And it's a question of whether or not, um, you know, other types of incentives would be able to work. And Governor Kemp has clearly, you know, come out against mandates. So I think the larger issue is is that when um, the federal government has tried to impose mandates either on federal workers or through OSHA on private employees, why, you know, is Georgia kind of participating in the backlash against that? Um, but then there is a sort of persuasion campaign. And I mean and I've noticed on television in the last week or so, um, you know, ads, you know, I've I've seen, you know, Governor and Mrs. Kemp with Monica Pearson, so other things that they're trying to do. And I think it's just a question of whether or not those types of ads are actually going to be persuasive. Um, right now opposition to the vaccine is pretty kind of hard best and calcified. So just the idea that, you know, people who are predisposed to not want to get vaccinated, we know that there is some partisan sort of undertones to this. Would they be willing to go get vaccinated because a Republican governor told them to? Probably not at this point. And so if anything may change behavior, it may be seeing how fast Omicron spreads throughout the state. And then people realizing that, oh, this is something that I should do. Unfortunately, if this is as as contagious as it is, people might actually not be able to get vaccinated because they might get infected first. Um, And and, and so that just means people are going to learn the hard way about what people have been telling them for a year.
1: Professor Jones, here's the latest data from the Department of Public Health. 81% of Georgia's intensive care, unit beds are in use, and about 29% of adult ventilators are in use, that still the bed usage numbers are still lower than the peak in September, but uh, the trend is not looking great.
4: It really doesn't, and I guess I'm waiting for the moment when, um, you know, the pandemic again impacts the economy, right? I'm saying the governor doesn't have control over whether or not um, people are sick and dying, Um, such that it impacts the economy that he thinks is so important, and it is. Um, And so I feel like there should just be some attention to that, because part of the point is that we do want Georgians working um, in the hospitals and at various uh, professions around the state. So um, I hope to some degree that people are motivated by their need to
0: uh, maintain the economy and to work for their own families. Tomorrow. Um, piggybacking off what Professor Jones just said, we are starting to see segments of the economy that are starting to at least slow down. Um, You're starting to see many local restaurants who are saying, hey, we're going to need to close for a couple days or a couple weeks because so many of our staff members have been infected. Uh, We saw on Broadway shows starting to close. um, And I wonder if we're going to start seeing at arts venues around the city similar things. Maybe concerts are going to be canceled. People aren't going to want to gather in those large groups. Um, I also want to follow up on something uh, Professor Gillespie said about kind of how the resistance has sort of calcified uh, over the last couple of months. And I think it, it was no more obvious than a couple of days ago. There was a panel event that former President Trump did with, I believe it was Bill O'Reilly, um, in which he said yep. he'd gotten vaccinated and he'd gotten boosted. And even Donald Trump got booed by people. I mean, so that goes to show, um, you think this man's word would be like coming from God for a, a big segment of conservatives, but that's not even true. There's some some people who, um, even on this issue, are going kind of beyond what, what Trump is saying.
1: And Emma, I guess that's the challenge for Republican leaders who are trying to encourage Georgians to get vaccinated, because there is this, it has become such a politicized effort, um, and, and they're trying to walk some sort of line, you know, not, not trying to Uh, infuriate primary voters who who could punish them but at the same time you know advocate for public health you're hearing the same message from a lot of them which is essentially go talk to your medical provider um, get 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 advice from your doctor your 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 nurse your your caregiver Um, but the truth is many many Georgians don't have Medical providers—they don't have doctors or nurses. Um, they go to the ER if they need help. they they, they don't have uh, primary care physicians at the at the ready for them. So, so it's it's a it's a it's a it's a mixed message to, to many.
2: Yeah, and I think I mean Governor Kemp is one of the few who has said very clearly that he's vaccinated mm-hmm. and boosted. many others you see sort of dodging the question a little bit, um, saying, you know, I've made my decision, people make their own decisions. So you're right, for Republicans, this has become a a political answer that they have to, they decided they have to think about and and weigh so that they don't isolate anybody. And it's just, you know, it's just crazy to think about how fast everything is moving with this pandemic. We had such a false maybe false sense of security. I was looking back. It was like when Bottoms put this mask mandate back on, when did she list it? It was only like six weeks ago that she listed the mask yeah. mandate. And so I just, the, the speed of the pandemic um, is, is really um, difficult to keep up with. And, and we're not through the woods yet.
1: Professor Jones, a reminder that we all have to be vigilant. Um, we have to, you know, As we as folks go home for the holidays or or at least have virtual gatherings to remind our loved ones, too, if they haven't been boosted, if they haven't gotten vaccinated, go get that shot.
4: And I think that's really important because, you know, some people are going to be put in peril over the weekend as we try to celebrate. Um, This is probably wishful thinking, but to some degree, because uh, our new mayor has contracted the Omicron, Mm -hmm. and he is a new face who we've just elected. I'm hoping that perhaps for the city, um, you know, his sort of new leaf approach, which I'm assuming is going to involve encouraging Atlantans to get vaccinated, encouraging them to wear masks to protect themselves until the surge is passed, um, might have some kind of an impact. Just um, I'm going to hope for that over the holiday season so that maybe someone will be encouraged to go ahead who's been calcified um, for the last year or two.
1: Amen. Well, let's shift to another issue. Uh, I might be a doomsdayer, but in Sunday's AJC, I, I, I predicted basically a brutal legislative session. You know, some legislative sessions, the biggest issue is something like hospital bed tax fees and things like that. In this legislative session, it's going to be, it looks like it'll be, a series of really divisive culture wars type issues, and that's in part because David Perdue's challenge to Brian Kemp could pull him pull him further to the right and lead to more debate over these guns, gender issues of, of sex and identity. Um, and it, tomorrow, it looks like one of those issues could be the, the topic of constitutional carry, gun rights. Um, this is something that Governor Kemp and both and David Perdue have both embraced. Um, but this could be the year, this upcoming session could be the year where Georgia goes undergoes what could be the most expansive gun rights measure in, in at least a generation
0: sure and when we talk about constitutional carry um you know and and some people on the other side call it permitless carry mm-hmm. we're talking about when it allows gun owners to carry concealed weapons without a permit and it's something that's been you know floating around obviously conservative politics for a long time and i believe it's something that the governor has tried to get through in the past correct me if i'm wrong greg but he's been stymied
1: he has endorsed the issue, but there there hasn't been a real big push. He has not put his political capital behind it. And Emma, this is why David Perdue might see some room to criticize the governor on it, because you know, no one can forget the shotgun ad. No one can forget poor Jake <laughs> sitting next to the Governor Kemp at the time when he was a secretary of state. Um, it, you know, the governor promised this broad expansion, and if he doesn't deliver— He could be. It it could very well be yet another wedge issue in 2022 in the primary.
2: Yeah, I mean, and it it is interesting because you know maybe six months ago, if we were thinking about what this election would look like, we would say probably we're not going to see Jake again. We're not going to see that that side of Governor Kemp because he's probably mostly running against the Democrat in November, and this this dynamic is not the case anymore. Um, But I think it's also important to remember that there are, you know, 200-plus members of the Georgia General Assembly, and more than half of them are Republican, and almost all of them, many of them, uh, would also be interested in passing this legislation for their own races, whether they have primaries um, or just very conservative um, constituents. So. Kemp and Purdue behind it, yes, but also this is a, this is um, this could very be a uniting force among the Georgia Republicans in the General Assembly
1: tomorrow. That's a good point because Republicans are worried about their own primary battles, and in general, the top of the ticket is worried about getting as many conservatives from rural and and red areas out to the ballots.
0: Exactly, and Governor Kemp, of course, is trying to win back a lot of those kind of red meat conservative voters after Trump has pushed this idea that that uh, Governor Kemp is insufficiently conservative. So perhaps this is just the place for the governor to kind of burnish his conservative bona fides uh, with an issue like that. Given his bully or bully pulpit as the the governor, it's also a place you know where if you look down the race for lieutenant governor, where you have Butch Miller, you have Bert Jones trying to un or you know out conservative. One another. So it's, it's kind of the perfect avenue for them to do that.
1: Professor Gillespie, your take?
3: Well, I mean, so this is a classic kind of moving to the right because the primary electorate is going to be more right in terms of its point of view. So you're doing everything you can to try to hit that median Republican voter. Um, and I think that what Republicans are banking on is that they're going to be able to keep that side of the base enthused to show up to vote in a general election that they would be able to put together sort of a winning coalition of just Republican voters who show up more and are more enthusiastic than Democratic voters um, in 2022. But I also wanted to think about the policy and to think about the morality of this, even though I know that this isn't going to linger in the news cycle very long. The idea of talking about concealed carry in a week where somebody was hiding a gun on his person and shoot somebody in a movie theater because somebody else is sitting in his seat is sort of a reason against having concealed carry. Now, I know gun rights people are going to say, but if the other guy had a gun, well, but who wants to be like, you know, doing shootout at the OK Corral, like when you're trying to go watch Spider-Man? These are the things that we really need to think about. I am thankful that this wasn't a mass shooting event, like you know, uh, you know, at the uh, at, at the Dark Knight sort of premiere in mm-hmm. Colorado in Aurora, Colorado. But again, if I'm going to a movie, and I think a lot of us here have been to that movie theater before, that is the last thing you want to do. Like you know, the moral of it is go talk to the usher, don't go shoot the guy, right? Because it's probably just an honest mistake.
1: Yeah, and uh, follow up to you, Professor Gillespie. Why are these issues? I mean, you've researched this. I mean, why are these sort of culture wars issues so so? Galvanizing to to a sector of the electorate. I mean, you know Basically, why are folks going to go why do why do candidates think folks were going to go out to the polls to vote on issues of of race gender? uh, Guns the the social issues that that, that can be so divisive
3: So it's for two reasons one um, because these discussions and these issues highlight sort of a changing social dynamic in the United States where different groups are making claims for power and representation um, and when you see new groups coming in, some of the older groups feel more threatened. And so we think about it in terms of the loss of social dominance. Um, and so people who have a high sense of social dominance orientation in this instance might actually sort of feel threatened by, you know, proposals that you can't walk around with a gun and nobody know about it and other kinds of things. Um, but the other larger issue is that we're, you know, in a moment where people are angry and angry. Anger has a mobilizing uh, effect. Um, it works differently in different types of groups, but for the Trump constituency, um, anger is what uh, you know increases voter turnout for them. So that's why the Republicans are tapping into it.
1: Uh, Professor Jones, I mean, we've I talked. Mean, uh, yeah, go for it. You,
3: I guess, I'm concerned, and every time I see this
4: talked about, it really takes me to the Ahmad Arbery situation, which is sort of, you know, not aligned. But I, as we talked about when we got on this morning, um, things are more tense on the street. Um, as a result of this polarization, as a result of the former president's, um, I think, stoking of this sort of, you know, economic and racial resentment. And um, I, I would be very disappointed um, if Constitution and Kerry were to pass. And, you know, I think it would make many of us very nervous to be on the street, um, you know, to be in the movie theater where you expect to have a relaxed time and you end up encountering a shooting, and I don't think that that's an unreasonable thought uh, in this day and political posture that we're in.
1: Professor Jones, I want to get you a for, for a follow-up too, because we've talked about this on the show as well. But constitutional carry will be far from the only cultural issue up. I mean, we've talked about anti-obscenity legislation involving books. We've mm-hmm. we've talked about legislation that will surely be up involving. Um, a critical race theory, which is something that's not even taught in K-12 schools in Georgia. Um, even, a, even a statue for Clarence Thomas um, will be a divisive issue. And, of course, Buckhead, um, the likelihood that there will be a referendum to, in the legislature um, that, that could reach Governor Brian Kemp's desk. So there's a range of issues that are all tailored to energize GOP voters by the Republican-controlled majority.
4: And I guess for me, um, in terms of the research that I do, you know, Georgia, other Southern states, not just the Southern states have long histories of um, control of particular populations through the use of violence and, um, you know, we're talking about the CRT, um, you know, minimizing information and knowledge about those people. And, um, you know, I don't, I think that every time we talk about Buckhead, we're talking about crime. We're we're also talking about race, right? We're talking about that with CRT. What is our real history? Everyone is implicated in that, whether they are willing to be or not. Um, And part of what has happened historically is that some people have had the liberty um, to be violent towards others. And I feel like We are in a huge wave of that again. And so something like Constitution carry, these issues that we're having with CRT. um, I had not heard about this Clarence Thomas statute. That is (laughs) blowing my mind. I'm going to read about that immediately after we get off. (laughs) Um, You know, these are divisive things that I think um, the math of the past, right? They look very similar to the kinds of things that I research and write about. and I think I am, and other people should be nervous about that.
1: Emma, the last word before the break?
2: Yeah, and I think it's just you know these two things that we're expecting to to dominate in terms of the culture war issues of the session, critical race theory and um constitutional carry. I mean both we're talking about politics because both are these kind of, these issues that are they're strange, right as you said, critical race theory is not taught in k through twelve schools in Georgia. I mean, Georgia's gun laws are rated F by most um, gun control advocates already. So, you know, some might say we're here looking for like a a solution, looking for a problem. But um, but it's the political dynamics that we're discussing that are that are behind these pushes.
1: All right, Emma, thank you for the last word on, on this segment. When we come back, we'll take a look at some Democratic ideological clashing in the suburbs of Atlanta. We'll be right back on Political Rewind. Okay, we're back on Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein from the AJC filling in for Bill Noggett on the last live panel of the year. And I'm joined today again by Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University, Emma Hurt, reporter with Axios Atlanta, Adrian Jones, a professor of Professor of Political Science at Morehouse University, and Tamar Hallerman, a senior reporter with the AJC. All right, folks, let's get back into some politics so we don't have to talk about them with our families over the holiday weekend. I am already experiencing that with mine. Um, you know, I mentioned this Democrat on Democrat ideological clash, and, and Tamar, I want your take on this because you you've covered both Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McMath extensively. It's not going to get as much attention as Kemp versus Purdue. It's just not. But we do have this fascinating uh, battle between a more centrist-leaning Democrat and a more liberal-leading Democrat in Gwinnett County, in sort of the beating heart of, of the, Demo- the new Democratic coalition in Georgia.
0: Yeah. And we're talking you know, about the criticism against Brian Kemp and how sometimes there's this narrative painted that he's insufficiently conservative, but you look at a lot of his actions and there there's probably very little that conservatives can complain about. And I think when you look at somebody like Carolyn Bordeaux and you look at somebody like Lucy McBath, there's not a ton ideologically that separates them. They've pretty much voted the same since they've gotten to Congress. But there's this perception now that that bordeaux is is kind of more moderate. And granted she's aligned herself with a more moderate caucus. Um up on the hill she's she's joined the problem solvers caucus. She uh signed her name on an op-ed that ran, I believe, in the Washington Post that was urging uh, Congress to pass the infrastructure bill before their giant social spending package. Um, and so now she's uh, seeing the wrath of that by groups who, who say that she's insufficiently liberal. And so now you're starting to see people pick sides in that competition. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, now that these political lines are being redrawn, how much, you know, whether she can hold on to her district.
1: Yeah. And Emma, it's important to know, too, you know, the geographic advantage uh, that, that that Carolyn Bordeaux might have. She's picking up in key endorsements from the 7th District. She's saying she's not going to drop out of the race. Lucy McBath, who's lived in East Cobb, is, is moving to the district to run. So Carolyn Bordeaux is basically presenting herself as the, as the local, as the incumbent. But we're also talking about a very diverse district and, and Lucy McBath uh, being one of the most prominent black female politicians, not just in Georgia, but among the rising stars across the nation.
2: Yeah, I mean, you—the new seventh district is, I believe, sixty percent of um, Bordeaux's mm-hmm. current constituents, but it's majority minority, as Lucy McBath's team has pointed out. Neither of them live in the district right now, um, but it—it it just sets up this like horrible fight that Democrats in Georgia. You know, saw coming. Maybe some people sort of closed their eyes to in hopes that it wouldn't actually come to be like this. But, I mean, we've been talking about this possibility for a while as as redistricting was happening. And it just is a horrible dynamic to have two incumbents running against each other. It's one of the few districts in the country, I think, where this dynamic is is playing out. And it's going to be ugly, man.
1: Yeah, it's going to be ugly. And, And, Professor Gillespie, it also gives... Republicans a little bit of a counter, you know, because there'll be so much focus on Kemp-Purdue and and, and also on the, the Republican race uh, for U.S. Senate, the Republican side. So it does give Republicans a way to say, hey, you know, Democrats are having their own internal dilemma as well.
3: Um, yes, but no. I mean, the statewide races are going to get far more attention yeah. than, you know, this Northeast Atlanta metro race is, is, is ultimately going to get. Um, I do think it's a question. I'm going to be very curious about the strategy. Um, and I think if Lucy McBath's appeal is just that you know she is more descriptively representative, I'm not quite sure that that's enough. Um, one, she is coming from outside the district, um, and then two, Gwinnett County is so much more diverse that this is, goes beyond the black-white binary. I'm not 100% sure that that's necessarily going to carry over. Um, if, if, if McBath wants to, you know, talk about her, you know, thing that she may have an edge on, it's the fact that she served an extra term, that she's had more time to sponsor bills, she's had more time to get things through. Um, Which is actually very impressive for somebody who is in their second term. But I think she's going to have to go up against Carolyn Bordeaux's cultivated relationships in the district over the last few years, even before she actually won her term. Um, And, um, you know, because of her previous background kind of has um, some technical expertise that I'm sure she will not shy away from showing off um, in terms of the debate. So this race will be interesting, but I think most people are going to be focused on Kemp and Purdue. Um, they're going to be focused, you know, even on looking to see sort of whether or not Herschel Walker makes it to a cakewalk. And the focus is always, you know, going to be sort of with an eye towards November and the big marquee statewide races there.
1: agree. Professor Jones, I love your thoughts.
4: I guess I'm less, I'm disappointed that the two have to run against each other. In large part because of partisan redistricting, which I think everybody needs to notice is arguably going to last for the next decade. This means that Georgians aren't being represented as effectively as they might be. You know, um, these were both Congress people who were duly elected by their um, constituents in what was before their separate districts. Um, and I think it's a very good example of how. Um, The redistricting impacts both partisanship and race. And in the state of Georgia, where now uh, the GOP, of course, has drawn the lines to uh, benefit the GOP, um, we need to pay attention to the fact that we have a decade of that uh, to maneuver. And it has an impact on whether or not Georgians are able to get the kinds of uh, relief and livelihood that they'd like to have.
1: Yeah, tomorrow. I mean, let's be clear here too. When when Republicans redrew those district lines for Lucy McBath, they tried to draw the sixth district, which was which had been going tilting increasingly Democratic, basically into a Republican district for the next decade by adding in Dawson County, a very red county up in North Georgia.
0: And symbolically, of course, the 6th District is so important to Republicans in Georgia. Of course, that's where Newt Gingrich came from. That's where Johnny Isakson came from, Tom Price. So I don't know how much of it had to, you know, came from kind of that historical like um, sentiment, but still, um, you know, and we talk about Lucy McBath and the, the strength that she brings um, in that 7th District. And to me, what sticks out about Lucy and what always has has been her story. Um, you know, her her son was killed by gun violence in in what was obviously a racist attack uh, about nine years ago in Florida, and it's something she talks about all the time. It's her driving force in Congress. You know, she is singularly focused on gun control legislation. And so I think that's the strength that she's going to bring to this race. Um, you know, Carolyn Bordeaux is a little bit wonkier. You know, she's this budget geek who, who went on to um, you know, be a be a professor at, at Georgia State. But at the same time, she has been a powerhouse at raising money. She knows how to put her nose to the grindstone, fundraise, fundraise, fundraise. And you could see that, you know, she fun out fundraised Mark Woodall, the um the incumbent in 2018, three to one or something just absurd like that. And she was able to clear her field in the primary last year in something like a six-way race. So I would not underestimate her either. What will be interesting for me to see is how many Democrats and groups end up picking sides or how many of them truly end up trying to sit out of this race. Uh, both women are great at raising money. Of course Lucy McBath has her old employer every town for gun safety in her corner that's helped with a lot of dark money to help her out. So I'm expecting them to spend a lot, but who else gets involved in this race and who decides they don't want to go near this thing with a 10-foot pole?
1: Yeah, and Emma, you know, we talked about the 7th uh, the 6th district changing, Lucy McBath's old district changing. But the 7th District is going to change, too. No one knows how the voters are going to react because it is going to become smaller, more Gwinnett County-centric. It loses that big chunk of Forsyth County that was so so conservative, and it gains a part of Fulton County uh, that had been trending Democratic as well.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the arguments that Representative Donna McLeod, State Representative Donna McLeod, who's also in this primary, yep. less we forget, um, has made. Like, I've been here hearing the whole time both of these ladies are... Pretty new to the area, um, so it will be interesting to see. But as Tamar said, Macbeth's story is is very clear and easy for someone to understand and grasp. It's emotional and it, it it resonates, I think, in a way that um that can that can politically um has obviously captured a lot of voters um as well. And the issue is, as we've discussed already on this on this panel, so prevalent. And I just want to say, in terms of picking sides. You can't forget that um, House Majority, Whip Jim Clyburn, had a fundraiser for McBath mm-hmm. already, which is kind of a huge deal to have a member of leadership taking stuff like that in a two incumbent race. I don't think we'll see, you know, the big DCCC uh, groups coming in officially, but that is a big thing.
1: Yeah, the DCCC is going to stay out of this. I actually was with them the day that the story broke and they said, see ya. We won't be seeing you this year. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Emma, I want to stay with you because you've been reporting uh, a lot on a a piece of news we haven't been able to get to on Political Rewind yet. And that is the Camden County Spaceport secured a commercial license from the FAA. It's only the 13th issued across the country. There's still a long way to lift off. There's going to be a lot of legal action. But tell us where things stands and what, what it could mean to Georgia.
2: Yeah, so this is some almost 10 years after the county first had the idea of of trying to build a spaceport on the coast, right north of Florida, and it's been plagued by delays. Um, They redid their application at one point, but they finally um, secured a spaceport operator license. That's not mean they can launch any rockets. Any rocket launch requires additional licensing, and that's something the FAA was very clear that they they said to the National Park Service, which is very much opposed to this idea because it proposes launching rockets over Cumberland Island National Seashore. Um, But where it stands now is the the license has been granted. Therefore, the county could build a spaceport and apply to launch rockets. But a a judge um, down in South Georgia has temporarily um, stopped the county's plans to buy land because there are local residents were trying to force a referendum on the purchase of the spaceport property so they have a a hearing in early january and and so we're we're in stasis mode right now to see whether this can actually move forward
1: and tomorrow there's been a lot of local pushback to this idea but also we we talked a lot about the show on about rivian and how it could be a game changer to georgia's economy in the automotive and electric vehicle uh, sector but if this ever does achieve liftoff, and we're talking, you know, years, years, maybe even decades away until, it, you know, it can happen. But you talk about a game changer for for Georgia's coast, good and bad.
0: Sure. And you've got a lot of the, the homeowners in that area who have been very, very uh, vocal in their opposition to this. Also, the National Park Service uh, that helps oversee Cumberland Island, saying that this can't be good. There could be debris coming down and, um, you know, destroying what makes this ecosystem so special. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if these folks can get a, a victory in court or whether this is something that we're going to be hashing out for years to come.
1: You know, and Emma, one more one more note about this before we go to break. But. You know, we talk about everything being politicized. I haven't seen, you know, Georgia statewide officials take too much of a stance on this, but but I might be totally missing it.
2: <laughs> so, in the early days of this proposal, all of Georgia's Republican uh, members of Congress and senators signed on, you know uh, approving or uh, you know supporting the idea. Governor Kemp, in his campaign, release his statement in support of it in the name of jobs, because this is the argument that the county government is making that this is going to change the economic development dynamics in Georgia and in Camden County. But since then, you know, I've asked Governor Kemp about it a couple times, and he's backpedaled a little bit saying, you know, I don't, I, um, you know, that statement was a long time ago. And um, I'm not really, the state isn't really involved in that right now. I'm, you know, support job growth, but but kind of um, taking a step back from the issue. So I think because the opposition has continued in the county, both from residents on Cumberland Island, Little Cumberland, who are below the rocket trajectory, and county uh, taxpayers who are calling it a waste of money, there's been um, a little bit of a step back.
1: You know, it's a completely different topic, but we've definitely seen how, you know, the issue of um, – Drilling on the coast became, uh, you know, became a divide in the 2018 race for for governor. Um, so certainly, you know, issues that might not seem as big of a deal statewide could crop up. Um, you know, we're going to head to our final break of the show, but when we come back, we're going to we're going to take a different little strategy here and look at some of the top stories and the top questions of 2021 and 2022. <laughs> We are back on Political Rewind. I'm Greg bluesting with the AJC, guest hosting for Bill Nygut, who's getting some much-deserved rest. I'm joined by Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University, Emma Hurt, a reporter with Axios Atlanta, Adrian Jones, professor of political science at Morehouse University, and my colleague, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter of the AJC. Let's start this new segment with some of the top moments and the top questions of 2021 and 2022. and you. Tomorrow, I don't think we can start this segment or talk about this issue without talking about the lies about the 2020 election that continue to fester a year after Democratic wins in the presidential contest and the Senate runoffs. Um, Judging by the rhetoric we are already seeing from Republican lawmakers that, you know, from the runoff period and on, um, this issue does not seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. And it's already shaping in a major way the 2022 races.
0: Absolutely. I mean, look no further than the Secretary of State's race, where you've got Brad Raffensperger running for re-election. You've got Congressman Jody Heiss uh, with the endorsement of Donald Trump, who's kind of firmly pushing the Trump narrative that this election was stolen and that he wouldn't have certified the election. Uh, You've got Brian Kemp, who's continuing to have to answer questions about all of this and, of course, is dealing with the wrath of, of Donald Trump for not pushing back harder on this. So this is absolutely going to be shaping pretty much every statewide race up and down the ballot. But you even have David Perdue talking about it, too. So um, it's certainly going to continue to be a headache for these incumbent Republicans who are around for for 2020 who are hoping to get another four years in office next year.
1: Emma, I mean, David Perdue is not just talking about it. He's opening with it, right? Um, He told you he wouldn't certify the election re- results. He told me he would have, he demanded uh, a special session um, from Governor Kemp to invalidate Joe Biden's victory, essentially. And of course, he joined that Fulton County lawsuit that, that re-brought up, re-invoked all those debunked claims about ballot fraud.
2: Yeah, and he's he's bringing up the, the settlement agreement or consent decree, as people call it, the settlement agreement, technically, between... Um, you know, the Democratic Party and the Secretary of State. And there's that's been a key source of disinformation about the election um, for for republican for some Republicans. And he opened with it because it's his main differentiator with Governor Kemp, right? I mean, his argument for running is that he is the best candidate to beat JC Abrams because he is the candidate who can speak to and and uh, motive, motivate Trump's base. And these are, the people who maybe stayed home in the Senate runoffs because they were worried about election integrity.
1: Hey, Professor Jones, this is also not going away in the legislative session because we're already seeing proposals to ban ballot drop boxes from Butch Miller, who is a Republican candidate for lieutenant governor. So this is going to affect uh, beyond Campaign Trail.
4: Um, I think this is part for the course for the state of Georgia, right? We have a very long history of changing the voting rules um, when access is too democratic in the eyes of um, the state legislature. And so, I mean, not only do we get restrictive rules that are going to make it more difficult for voters to get to the polls next year, um, and in 2024, now, of course, Butch Miller, for example, is talking about banning all drop boxes. I mean, really, (laughs) um, the point should be to give Georgians access and give them an opportunity to vote. Instead. Um, which is, again, historically not unusual uh, because the 2020 election did not go the way that the majority (laughs) political party in the state wanted to. Um, They're willing to uh, change the rules and change the rules again. And the goal here should be to give people access to the ballot box.
1: Gotcha. Professor Gillespie, um, this dovetails with that. But of course, another huge story from 2021 that will continue to shape 2022 is the Democratic victories. The fact that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, their, their wins flipped the U.S. Senate and gave Joe Biden a pathway to pursue a far more ambitious agenda, passing coronavirus relief uh, pushing through the infrastructure bill, and now the ongoing debate about will or won't his better, his Build Back Better social spending agenda pass. So, this is a pair that has already had a huge impact on the national stage, and it's, <laughs> they're going to continue to have a huge impact on the national stage with that 50 50 split in the US Senate.
3: Yeah, I mean, and so I think the big question of 2022 is how much get passed kind of before everybody goes home so that they can go back and campaign for their seats. Um, You know, uh, because we have the 50-50 sort of razor-thin majority in in, in, in the Senate, um, this is a year where, according to conventional wisdom, we would expect Republicans to make gains. A party out of power tends to do better than a party in power in congressional elections. And so with such a razor-thin majority, what people are looking ahead to is the possibility that Republicans are going to take over one or both chambers of Congress. And so, you know, included in that is going to be Senator Warnock seat, which is and so they're looking, you know, here in Georgia, they're looking at other states in New Hampshire, Arizona, um, you know, in particular to see whether or not Democrats are going to be able to hold on to those um, to those seats as well. And then you have a razor thin majority for Democrats in the House of Representatives as well. So, um, you know, the sort of trend doesn't look good for Democrats just in terms of history. It also doesn't look good right now in terms of the generic re-elect number. So it's going to be really incumbent on those who currently hold power to try to get as much done in the first quarter to half of this year as possible, because it's going to be really difficult to get anything else done before, you know, by the time we're starting to head into the fall.
1: And I want to ask you about this this next story, because you covered it so intensely, but it was the murder trial of, of, of Ahmaud Arbery, um, who, was, who was killed in coastal Georgia, right around near where you're staying right now, Um, of course, it received national attention. It played a huge role in a continuing conversation about race in America. Civil rights leaders welcomed the convictions um, last month, but also, of course, urged the public to remember there there was much more work to be done.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, talking to my national editors at Axios, I think from afar, the case seemed so clear that, that these men were guilty. But in Georgia covering this on the ground, there was apprehension that, that guilty convictions would really come through, especially because it was a almost all white jury. There were these there were these assumptions with, you know, real data that backed them up. But the three guilty verdicts came down and that was a real Jolt and burst of energy and and um um and joy really for some of the activists here who have been beating this drum since um, since Arbery was killed and nobody was paying attention to it in February 2020.
1: And tomorrow to wrap up uh, another issue that burst into the forefront in 2021 that will be huge nationally. It sounds parochial, but it's going to be a huge national story. Buckhead, um, the fate of the city of Buckhead. Will that wealthy North Atlanta um, neighborhood split off from the rest of Atlanta.
0: Absolutely, and of course, this touches on issues. I mean, starting with race, going down, you know, continuing with with crime, um, you know, and it's something that you're starting to see more and more coverage of it in national newspapers. And of course, the, these are issues that have uh, you know happened in cities from Baton Rouge to Birmingham. But when the fact that the South's biggest city um is is kind of going this route i think a lot of people are paying attention and you talk to folks who are against the cityhood effort and they say Mm -hmm. this could really harm our our reputation nationally as we seek to lure more people to live here more companies to relocate here and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out
1: it will and we are out of time thanks so much to my panel the last live panel of the year say it again with force uh thanks to the awesome here. staff at gpb senior producer natalie mendenhall producer sam bermas dawes engineer jesse nicewanger bill nigett is back on the airwaves with truman caputi's christmas memories tomorrow take care be safe and happy holidays